Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics in the time of coronavirus. We are hosted by Descent Magazine, and our producer is Colin Kinneborough. This week, we are talking to Patrick Houston, Climate and Inequality Campaigns Associate at New York Communities for Change. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to have uh, Patrick on. We had a really great conversation, which we're really excited to share with you in a few minutes. And I just want to note, you know, I've been studying climate politics in New York for a while now for a book that I'm working on. And I just think of New York Communities for Change as really a great, great organization doing fantastic work. And, you know, in particular, um, one of the groups uh, out there in the U.S. that has been really centering racial justice and its climate organizing uh, sort of systematically for the entirety of its um, of its years working on climate. And so, you know, I think we felt that with folks all across the environmental movement asking themselves in the last couple of weeks, how can we center racial justice uh, a lot more in our climate work in order to meet the kind of demands of this moment? Um, talking to Patrick about NYCC's work on that regard would be uh, immensely clarifying. And I think it, it was. It was very clarifying uh, to, to uh, really, I think, draw some connections, which can seem a bit abstract um, for folks who might not be, you know, organizing on the ground uh, around around climate stuff and around um, things like housing and racial inequality, just, you know, how closely interlinked uh, these things are in people's actual lives can be um, a lot more obvious uh, than, it, than it can seem from, from reading the news or, you know, various hot takes. Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly right. Um, and that's perfectly put, you know, when you start not with a graph of carbon emissions and then just work out and only from there. But when you start with the problems that people are facing in the world and then link that up to the problem of the climate emergency, you, you, you get it. You ultimately end up with a very different organizing method and a very different framework. So um, that is what we're going to be talking about for the vast majority of the show. Um, quickly on the way over there, um, let's touch on a couple of news items. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on, on the sort of general note we were just touching on, um, I think we've seen just things that uh, even, you know, two weeks ago might have seemed impossible um, starting to become a uh, reality. At least there's movement in that direction. So the Minneapolis uh, City Council uh, with a veto-proof majority uh, pledged to disband its police department. Obviously, this isn't, you know, it's not as if they've already disbanded it, but... Um, is a is a pledge essentially to to move in that direction and, and um, you know move toward what a lot of folks in the streets have been saying uh, that we need to defund the police and and move toward a really different model of public safety and so they feel pressured to do that um, because people have been in the streets for for two weeks uh, and and you know are, are building on this this movement that has been going for for a long time. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that's, I think, a, a big victory in Minneapolis. We've seen other, you know, less dramatic moves. But so, for instance, Los Angeles, you know, Mayor Garcetti cutting $150 million um, from the police budget. I think we're hearing gestures about similar budget moves in other cities, possibly New York. Um, you know, the kind of demand has been to shift funding from police departments into investments directly in communities uh, and to not make the kinds of cuts that mayors have been talking about and various um, social services. We're seeing protests kind of erupting all this around the, the world. Uh, and I think, you know, I, just as you were saying, Kate, to pick up on this piece, you know, this is, I think these are wins, but they're not, the wins are not finished, very far from it. So, you know, I think we're still early in this movement and in this, in this kind of new phase of politics. But the fact that you're already seeing movement um, from elected officials, to me, is a sign that, this uprising is working. And obviously, we're going to need a lot more protest, a lot more mobilization, a lot more organizing. Uh, but it is nice to feel that we're not necessarily just shouting into a void right now, but we're starting to already see some some results. If this is what we're seeing after a couple of weeks, I think we've only really started to glimpse what's possible. I mean, there's just so much more that, that can happen. And I think, you know, it's a it's a sign to keep going, um, not, a, not a sign that, you know, anything's done, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to note, we've also been seeing some uh, primary wins for left candidates, which to me has been really encouraging in the wake of 
you know, Bernie Sanders defeat, but that, that movement is not over. Um, in DC, we had, uh, Janice Lewis George, uh, win a race. She'll become a city councilor and she beat an incumbent who was the protege of the mayor. So that was a, a big win. She's DSA endorsed, uh, candidate, um, early thirties, uh, black woman, very strong, uh, proponent of the green new deal. We've got in, in Philly, it's, it's early to declare victory. A couple of candidates of color, DSA-backed, big Green New Deal proponents, uh, Nikhil Saval in running for the state Senate, uh, Rick Krajewski running in West Philly for a state assembly seat. There are a lot of outstanding mail-in ballots, but the math is looking extremely good for them. Um, and their victories would be uh, victories for the left and for climate justice and also defeats of the Democratic Party machine in Philly, which I think augurs you know, really well for um, for much more progressive and even radical politics in, in that city, in my city, <laughs> which is where I live. The best city in the United States, I would I would argue, Philadelphia, uh, as a someone who lives in New York now. Um, yeah, and, and just outside of that, we've seen a renewed push of energy for races at, uh, at other levels. So Jamal Bowman uh, here in New York has, has gotten a sort of influx after <laughs> Elliot Engel, his, his uh, longtime incumbent opponent, has uh, embarrassed himself in several ways uh, in, in the last couple of weeks, including uh, telling um, telling someone he wouldn't care uh, to speak about black lives uh, if he didn't have a primary going on. Um, so that's that's looking kind of hopeful. Charles Booker in Kentucky uh, running for Senate has has gotten a, a little burst of energy as well. Uh, and so there's there's yeah, there's a lot of reasons to be excited, both in the streets and uh, at the at the ballot box. Absolutely. We are um, we are on the march and we're moving and things are moving. And it is, um, you know, I think there's there's so much brutality out there, so much violence. So we also have to pause and recognize the victories and the the achievements that we're already seeing just in the last uh, few weeks. So a couple quick reminders before we get to the interview. As many of you uh, know by now, we're counting on listener support to make this podcast possible. So if you have a few bucks to spare, if you haven't already signed up, and if you have already made donations to bail funds uh, or to um, other orgs that are supporting this uprising against police brutality, then please do head over to patreon.com slash hot bothered climate to sign up and support the production of this podcast and the pay of our freelance producer, Colin Kinnebra. Yeah. And uh, we do have a, a happy hour coming up later this month. We decided to postpone uh, the one that had been uh, scheduled for this week uh, to make sure, you know, we didn't distract from, from what was happening in the streets and that folks could be could be out there if they they want it to be um but we have rescheduled that for june 22nd so if you have not already signed up at patreon um you still have a chance you can you can join us later this month that's right yeah so that's a happy hour for our patrons and we'd also be grateful um if you would help spread the word about the show which of course is completely and utterly free um rate and review us on itunes on your podcast platform of choice uh get in touch uh, we'd love to hear feedback, suggestions for guests, anything like that. You can tweet at us using the hashtag hotbotheredclimate or email us at hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. So without further ado, uh, let's get into our conversation with Patrick Houston, Climate and Inequality Campaign Associate at New York Communities for Change. Patrick, welcome to Hot and Bothered. Hey, happy to be here. Um, to kick us off, um, you're in New York, that's right? Yes, I'm in Brooklyn. Great. So you've been, you know, we've, we've talked about this, and I think you've been out protesting in the streets quite a bit. Maybe just kick us off by letting us know, like, what's your experience of the recent kind of protests against police brutality, police violence um, been like? Yeah, for sure. Um, in the past few weeks, I've gone to several protests here in New York City, and uh, they vary in terms of the, the police response. So the first one was um, about five days after the, what was it, May 25th murder of George Floyd. Um, this was a large, large march from, we started down in Flatbush um, in Brooklyn. We marched around for a while. We ended up marching all the way 
through Brooklyn, across the Manhattan Bridge, up to 14th Street Union Square. Um, and it was it felt really good. I mean, the crowd was large. The crowd was diverse. There was one point when a bunch of us were gathered up front of Barclays Center. The energy was starting to dip because we had already been marching for hours. And then a whole swarm of, of another at least 1,000 people came down Flatbush Avenue. We joined forces, reinvigorated energy, and then continued the march. Um, but it was, uh, it was really power. That one was really powerful. Um, unfortunately, later in the evening, um, it did start to get a little violent as we got into Manhattan. Um, and then the police showed up. Um, so that was really unfortunate. Um, it was really good energy, completely peaceful, um, until that point. Um, so, so that was, uh, one experience that felt really good. Um, the other day, while New York City was still under curfew, uh, we, you know, went out in another protest um, into the evening. Another one, completely peaceful, high energy. Um, you know, just everybody feeling the sense of solidarity and 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 raising our voice for a greater cause. Um, and that one, it ended with the police kettling us on a residential block in. Uh, that may have been Crown Heights um, or Bed-Stuy, somewhere in that area. Um, so at that point, a lot of us thought we were about to get arrested. But thankfully, um, a city council member, um, Brad Lander and public advocate Jumani Williams, were also participating in the march. And they talked down the police from arrest, arresting the peaceful protesters. Um, so, But all in all, you know, they've been really powerful, um, overwhelmingly, you know, peaceful and just it's been great to see the multiracial solidarity and also just the persistence, you know? I mean, we're weeks later and people are still going hard and, you know, that's going to be really critical. So it's been, um, it's been invigorating in a lot of ways and inspiring in a lot of ways, despite the terrible circumstances that we're out there for in the first place. Yeah. And just to, um, I mean, just to, to get a little bit deeper in, to that, I mean, I think folks uh, who are listening to this might, uh, you know, might be in the climate movement, might kind of come out of that and um, be thinking about big demonstrations in, in in that sense and things like the People's Climate March um, that are, you know, these these big centralized demonstrations. But something that's that stood out to me about uh, this most recent wave of protests is just how uh, decentralized it's been uh, across. New York. I mean, really, like in in every borough, uh, it seems like almost every day there there's a protest. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? And and you know, if if the way sort of um, this wave is is picking up, how how that might feel different than you know other other protests folks might be used to. For sure, you know the thing. One thing really excites me about it. Um, another thing concerns me about it. So first, at least one of the things that really excites me about it is it's. Like you said, these protests over the last few days, I guess at this point it's been a few weeks, have been really organic. Tons of people coming out into the streets without necessarily being organized by any individual or organization. So that's extremely powerful. It's clearly getting the attention of elected officials, local, state, federal. Um, so that's been really great to see. Um on the flip side, you know, honestly, one thing that concerns me is look at what it took to get people taking action by their, you know, on their own volition, um, consistently um, and and passionately for day after day. You know, it was pretty dire. You know, it took a lot of black lives being murdered right in front of our eyes in the street by law enforcement um, to to uh, get this level of response. Now, that's not to underplay, you know, the response. It's been unprecedented, what, maybe the 60s was the last time we saw anything of this scale. So, so it's not to underplay that, but it is to say, um, you know, I don't want with the climate crisis us to have to witness more Hurricane Sandys, more Hurricane Marias, more California wildfires, more droughts in the Midwest to be like, oh man, it's 2028, it's 2032. And we better start to really 
you know, go ham to address the climate crisis. You know, we got to We got to start doing that um, uh, right now. And I think that, you know, we'll probably discuss more, but I think that uh, these reactions to police brutality and systemic racism that we're seeing right now are going to ultimately help with that linked um, climate fight. Yes, we are definitely going to get into that um, in a bit. And I, I want to pick up, you know, on something you just mentioned, because there's, you know, all these people who are out in the streets and um, it seems like one of the jobs of organizers like yourself is sort of channeling a lot of that energy and, and you know, looking at how to how to sort of leverage that into organizations, into policy change and, and you know, a, a number of things and, and Maybe we can start off sort of talking about uh, about New York Communities for Change, which has been doing climate justice work for uh, a few years, and you've been a big part of that. So, you know, I think certainly Daniel and I look to look to NYCC as an example of how to really fuse climate work with organizing that's grounded in racial and economic justice and housing justice. So, for folks who don't know about the organization, could you explain how it was founded and how NYCC got involved in, in climate work to begin with? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Let me start with NYCC's New York Communities for Change um, predecessor, ACORN, um, um, Association of Communities Organizing for Reform Now. So ACORN started in the 70s. It was a national organization that did a ton of work um, in working class communities, again, across the country on health care, you know, health rights, on education, on voter engagement um, and on housing. Um, it had a lot of success. It built a lot of power over the decades. Um, and then in 2010, you know, after this bizarre right-wing attack, it kind of disintegrated in, in as a national entity. But the good news is that it rebranded into um, state-based organizations, not in every state, but in several states. So New York Communities for Change is the successor of ACORN for New York State. Um, you know, we've continued a lot of the good work that ACORN did. Uh, and then we've added to it. So now we, you know, like you said, we, we're fighting fundamentally to address issues of racial, economic, and climate injustice. Um, but, you know, what does that look like on on our particular issue-based campaigns? It's it's housing affordability, it's education rights, it's workers' rights. Um, we fight on immigration, um, uh, criminal justice, and climate justice. Um, and like you said, we the climate justice work is one of our most recent campaigns which we started about three and a half years ago. Um, And, you know, that just came out of the simple but daunting reality that, you know, if we're an organization about addressing racial and economic injustice, um, we can't not um, take on the climate crisis, especially here in New York City, where so many of our members are, you know, living in Coney Island, Frontline to the climate crisis, living in the far Rockaways, projected to be underwater by end of century, living in Brownsville, heat island, food desert, um, badly hit by Hurricane Sandy in Red Hook. Um, also, someone even in, in Bedsty at the time, even though not many parts of that are below the waterline. So anyway, about three and a half years ago, we added um, the climate work to our to the list because. Uh, you know, we just could couldn't not. Now, the other thing I should mention too uh, about NYCC, I'm, I'm mentioning members, is we are a, you know we're a public advocacy grassroots organization. So we organize predominantly in Black and Brown communities, low income and working class communities in New York City and Long Island. Um, most of our campaigns target the uh, local and state level. Uh, we pack up significant punch there, but we also engage in, in some federal issues as well. Yeah, th- this is so fascinating. And, and I want to dig in more on what's so distinctive about NYCC. And, you know, I think you laid out a lot of that history really well. Um, t- you know, to me, NYCC doesn't at all fit the model of climate justice orgs as I normally see them. Like it's not a big green group that has sort of pivoted more towards social justice in recent years, as some of them have. It's not one of these environmental justice groups from the 80s and 90s that were fighting over contamination and pollution and then moved into climate. And obviously, all those groups are, are great. Um, but I guess, you know, as you were saying, NYCC really comes out of, the, you know, from ACORN, this work is, you know, housing, racial, economic justice, migrant justice, criminal justice. 
So I guess I, I'd ask you to say a bit more, like what's distinctive about the the method that you have of organizing around climate justice in, in black and brown communities? Like how do you see NYCC doing the work um, a little bit differently from maybe some of the other orgs that might have similar ideals in terms of climate justice, um, but don't don't have the same organizing model and history as NYCC does? That's a really good distinction. Um, how NY, you know, New York Community for Change, who we are and how we've, you know, engaged into this um, climate justice work. Um, I guess you know, first let me let me put it this way: I got into this work in the first place. I was looking for this type of work and engagement in the first place out of a deep concern that black and brown communities, the power of black and brown communities um, wasn't and isn't being, you know, executed to its full potential in this country. And then also out of a deep concern about the existential threat of, of climate change. And then when you mash the two together, you know, <laughs> it's just overwhelming. Uh, but when you mash the two together, you know, it was exactly what, what I was looking for. So New York Communities for Change, that's exactly what it comes out of. You know, originally um, and still, you know, it's fundamentally about, you know, how are we um, making sure that communities that are struggling um, have the resources that they need, um, decent and affordable housing, are being paid decent wages, um, and importantly, are having avenues to play a role in taking action to affect the change that they want to see. Um, and so then that's been our foundation. We've added the climate work into this component. I think some of the, in addition to what you've mentioned and what I just reiterated about, you know, that genesis of our, of us as an organization and then our climate work. In addition to that is um, specifically, one of the things that we envision is, is really effective. It's one thing for elected officials to hear from the traditional, um, maybe mainstream white environmental and climate organizations. And even it may be one thing for them to hear from um, long-term environmental justice organizations. Both of those things, critically important. We see that once they hear from um, collaborative efforts from your traditional white-led organizations, plus your environmental justice organizations and your climate justice organizations with white folks, black folks, brown folks, indigenous folks, that's a message, that's a multiracial constituency that they can't ignore. So that's one of the things that I think um, not only makes us um, um, in, in some ways distinct, and I say some ways because um, the good news is you're seeing this more and more um, across across the nation. So that's great. Um, but it's also what I think has helped us um, secure some wins in some of the campaigns that we've been running um, and just have made it that hard for you know New York City Council members and the mayor to disregard some of the climate justice movement in New York City. And likewise, the New York State Legislature and Governor Cuomo to uh, disregard some of our pushes. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna drill in um, to a couple of specific types of work that um, NYCC has been doing on on the climate front. But on a more kind of zoomed out level, I'm wondering, you know, you uh, you just described the approach NYCC takes to uh, to climate work, uh, which is really founded in this idea. It seems like of having this really powerful multiracial coalition. Um, so I'm wondering if if, if you could say in a broad sense, how does that influence the types of campaigns um, that that you work on? Uh, and and you know, thinking about you know what uh, other groups you might kind of be working alongside, um, and and just how how you go about choosing a fight uh, if what, coming from from that theory of change. You know, one of the things about New York Communities for Change with I mean, with all of our fights, even beyond climate, but including climate, is we push for changes as much as possible and as much as within, you know, some of the constraints of the reality of the world that we're operating in. But we push for changes at the scale and pace of the crises that we face, um, I would say, you know, 
nearly as much as possible, almost always as much as possible. Let me give one example outside of climate, and then I'll move into climate. Um, you know, many people, some listeners may be aware of the Fight for 15, uh, which started several years ago. When New York Communities for Change, this was before my time at the organization, but when they got engaged in, in that fight, the minimum wage in New York was $7.25. It was outrageous. You know, $12, fighting for $12, $11 as a minimum wage was considered, you know, best case scenario. $15 was considered outrageous. Regardless, NYCC, with a bunch of fast food workers, with a bunch of other organizations, pushed for that $15 minimum because that's what, you know, in fact, that's what a lot of the workers said. This is what we deserve. This is what we should push for. And won, you know? finally pushed Governor Cuomo to pass it into law. And now $15 minimum is is the law. Um, and it's, you know, it's already been implemented in, in New York City and soon to be the entire state. So equating that to our climate work, it's very similar. We push for campaigns that um, uh, a lot of times aren't easy for elected officials to um, <laughs> comprehend, let alone pass. Uh, but ultimately are ones that are actually going to help our communities um, be more protected from the climate crisis in the future. Um, and also, you know, hopefully have more opportunities um, with good paying green jobs, um, with more comfortable um, and energy efficient housing. Um, so that's a, that's a theme that, that runs through all of our work um, with the campaigns that we work on, um, almost always in collaboration with other other organizations, we're pushing for the change that's actually needed. And so, you know, with when it comes to uh, climate justice fights, when we talk about what's needed, you know, I think we can look at it through two lenses and then overlap those two lenses. The first lens is through climate science. You know, we got scientists telling us, you know, in ten years we got to cut our emissions in half. Um, to avert the worst of climate catastrophe. But then we also have to look through it, and that's just one example. And then we also have to look through it through the lens of climate justice. You know, so are we going to do what this many governments in this country have done over and over and say, hey, here, Black people, here's a little something to make you a little bit happier, quiet you down, and give us an excuse to move on to another issue? Or are we actually going to push for legislation that creates, I'm just going to use one example, creates tons of jobs and really has the infrastructure to make sure that those jobs are going to be made available with decent pay, good training, and prioritizing communities um, where the labor market is especially decimated, even before COVID, by the way. So those are some of the, um, the, the frameworks that we have in mind with our climate justice work, work that's at scale with the crisis, that's aligned with climate science, and that's also aligned with with justice for the communities that we organize. I, I love the way that you put that in those two lenses. Um, I just, I, I personally am like a huge fan of visual metaphors of like seeing things together. So I don't know, I really love that. And I'm going to be thinking about that. Um, let's, let's talk, kind of flesh that out a little bit in terms of concrete um, campaigns like you were talking about. So at the city level, um, NYCC was totally, you know, absolutely instrumental in getting local law 97 passed. I think some call it the New York Climate Mobilization Act. Um, at the time, some refer to it even as kind of like a Green New Deal in New York. It's one of the country's most aggressive low carbon buildings laws. And, you know, the law was opposed by New York's real estate sector, Rebney, which is super powerful. But there was support. There was some support from labor, support from political groups like Working Families Party. And at least my read of it is that it never would have, this law never would have passed without New York communities for change. And I, you know, I think we, we saw each other on city council the day that, that the law was passed. So I don't know, could you summarize in a few words, like the basics of what this law is and, you know, what, how did NYCC, you know, through its organizing ensure that this law uh, got passed? Yeah. Local law 97, uh, green new deal for New York city. We like to call it. This was um, New York Communities for Change. We played a big role in in this fight. 
um, I was really thrilled to play a role in, in this. So this is what the deal was. First, let me explain the problem. It's pretty mind-boggling. Buildings in New York City are the largest source of climate pollution. Um, buildings account for about 70% of the city's climate pollution. If that's not boggling enough, um, then you got to take into account that of that whole 70% of climate pollution, only 2% of buildings are responsible for half of that. So in other words, it's to say around 35% of New York City's overall pollution comes from 2% of buildings. That's insane. It's insane. You know, and it's, you know, obviously what buildings do you think this is? It's large luxury towers with um, inefficient glass, um, extra jacuzzis and other energy intensive things. So the Green New Deal for New York City or Local Law 97, which passed in, in 2019, was a years-long effort that really culminated in the year and a half um, leading up to uh, May of 2019, um, where we were pressing the New York City Council to pass legislation that drastically cut pollution from buildings, at least in alignment with the Paris Agreements, um, that ensured that there was a creation of, of many jobs and that there was a maximization of, of good union jobs that will come out of that. And importantly, a push to ensure that the energy efficiency retrofits that would be necessitated in these large buildings would not result in rent hikes for low-income tenants in rent-regulated buildings. You know, the idea was we could not solve and we can't solve the climate crisis on the backs of those least responsible. So this fight... Um, you know, it, it, it was a big push, um, ultimately a victorious one, and it was months and months of organizing a lot of people to do call after call, email after email, and then uh, lobby meeting after lobby meeting with New York City Council's 51 council members. Um, so it was a long call first to get the bill sponsor. Um and the speaker of the city council on board, but they came around after several months of a lot of activist pressure. And then um, from there, you know, things really started to snowball in our favor, uh, where we began to see more and more council members um, signing on in support of those fundamentals, three fundamentals I just laid out, and eventually crafting, you know, intro 1253, the legislation um, which eventually passed in the New York City Council. So that was that was a critical move for for New York City. Um, if implemented correctly, it's going to cut pollution from buildings, um, from the targeted large buildings, um, uh, at least forty percent by twenty thirty and eighty percent by twenty fifty. By twenty thirty, it should create nearly one hundred and fifty thousand jobs. Um, and you can imagine somebody has to do all of the energy efficiency retrofits, new insulation, um, more efficient heating and air conditioning um, to in, in, in tons of buildings across the city. So this was one of the this is a, a perfect example of the large scale um, campaigns that we we fight on. It's a perfect example. I mean, it is not at all hyperbole or cliche to say it was. It was really um, almost 200 activists persistently calling their city council members that um, got this thing over the over the hump. And now, you know, New York City passed what is this landmark legislation. It's the largest climate uh, pollution reduction bill on the municipal level uh, in the world. I think that's still the case. That was the case when it passed in mid-2019. Yeah, I mean, I think it's impossible... To overstate, I mean, this was a, the idea of slashing building emissions was something that Bloomberg wanted to do in 2009, and he couldn't even get a vote to the floor of city council. So the kind of political muscle that you all put together and then created something far more rooted in social justice, of course, than Bloomberg uh, had ever proposed. And, you know, I mean, I, maybe you want to say a couple words about this, but it, you talk about this really sophisticated lobbying operation, like all the calls and the emails and targeting every city councilor, but it's not 
I think it's a little different, right, coming from NYCC, because you are also an organization that is not afraid to disrupt, to get in people's faces, to get out in the street. It's not the same thing as just having um, a very polite kind of like national uh, white org that just like sends out some phone calls and that's all they do. But you have this sophisticated lobbying operation, but backed up by real power in terms of mobilization out in the streets. You know, Daniel, I got a funny story on that. We had been pushing for, you know, we needed the speaker of the city council to get behind our three principles, um, um, drastic pollution cuts, you know, aligned with the Paris Agreement, um, creation of good jobs, and making sure that um, rent-regulated tenants didn't face rent hikes. We had to get him behind those tenants um, of the bill, of the proposal, in order to get the bill sponsor and the rest of the council to be more excited about it. And so... We were, you know, hammering away early 2019, winter and spring, um, getting council members signed on. And finally, we got to the summer of 20, I'm sorry, 2018. And finally, we got to the summer of 2018. The speaker was still not on board. Um, and so we threatened to do an action out front of his office where we were going to have 50 activists out front um, calling him out. We had even made, y'all get ready to organize it. We had even made a Facebook page. Um, and it was sitting around for like a week. We were recruiting the, I believe it was the day before his office reached out to, uh, NYCC and the coalition and said, okay, 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 let's talk. So all that to say, you know, you got to start, you know, with the phone calls and with the petitions and with the letters, but you got to recognize at some point you got to escalate. And with the climate crisis, we are on a time clock. You know, this is physics. This is, you know, chemistry. Um, so we're up against um, the scientific time clock. So we got to escalate sooner rather than later when it comes to climate. Uh, so, yeah, so th- that's exactly it. Being able to to escalate and start to put the pressure on and put key decision makers under the heat of public exposure, turns out it's really critical. Um, yeah. So at the end of the day, you know, uh, that speaker, he ended up signing on and he ended up being a champion to push this thing through. You know, definitely give him that. He really did. And then uh, we also saw, I think in the end, about 46 of the 51 city council members, 46 or 47 around there, end up voting in favor of the landmark legislation. Oh, I uh, love in a show about uh, the climate crisis when we get to talk about victories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? they yeah. can be few and far, far between. Um, and on, on that note, I mean, uh, something else that... MICC has been involved in, um, had another pretty big victory uh, recently, which is the suspension of the Williams Pipeline project. Um, so I, I wanted to, you know, to hear, I mean, we just heard about this this massive buildings fight. Um, you know, how you go about mobilizing around something like a, a fracked gas pipeline um, and how, you know, how does that, that sort of, uh, campaign look different uh from from you know something like buildings and and how do you go about mobilizing around that yeah good question i can speak to um so yeah the williams pipeline was 23 mile frack gas pipeline that was proposed for new york harbor by williams companies um new york communities for change along with other organizations in the stop the williams pipeline coalition fought back um for over three years and ultimately and very recently had a, a large victory that, you know, pretty much seals the deal that the pipeline won't be built. Um, the pipeline would have been built right off of the, through New York Lower Harbor, and it would have connected to an existing pipeline off the coast of the Rockaways um, in in New York City. There we have many members who we, um, uh, several of which we engaged uh, more deeply in this fight, and two of which um, were directly impacted by Hurricane Sandy. Um, one, and I'll share Miss Phipps, because she's okay with me sharing her story. Um, I always felt conflicted when reaching out to her to, um, you know, give a comment, provide feedback um, to how she felt about the pipeline, um, come to a protest. Miss Phipps and her son Yasin, they have recently bought a home. Um, soon before Hurricane Sandy struck in 2012, Hurricane Sandy hits. They are displaced for many, in aggregate, over a year. Um, their home gets foreclosed on because of trying to 
keep up with the cost of the mortgage and the relocation and the repairs. Um, and now they're in, you know, it's 2020. They're back in the home, which was essentially rebuilt, but in this weird place of pre-foreclosure um, and the book still isn't closed eight years later. Um, and so, you know, Miss Phipps was really helpful in this fight, um, um, as were other folks and, and members that we organized in the Rockaways during this fight. But it was always this conflict of, I'm about to call up Miss Phipps, who's dealing with, she's a child care provider, um, um, who's dealing with more immediate issues of making sure she still can keep her home. And I'm asking her to help stop this pipeline that's going to contribute to climate change over the long term. You know, ultimately, it was important to engage Ms. Phipps. Ultimately, she was happy to um, engage and provide feedback and attend events. Um, but that's just one of the conflicts of of organizing in low-income communities, Black communities um, that are struggling with um, so many immediate issues. And in this case, ironically and tragically, immediate issues that were instigated by the climate crisis in the first place. Yeah, it's it's really powerful the way you put that and, you know, the difficulty of organizing um, folks facing immediate needs around, like like you were saying, kind of long-term contribution to climate change for something like a pipeline. But I guess that is why the, the overall work that NYCC does is so important, right? Because it's different to hear just a, like a straight kind of environmentalist come in and say, oh, there's also a social justice dimension than someone who's been like, I've been fighting for your housing uh, you know, justice situation, whether it's, you know, rental or, or uh, foreclosure, you know, for years, I've been fighting for, you know, the rights of people in your community for years. And we also want to combine climate, right? It just seems like that's a different, um, that's a much deeper commitment to that holistic sort of justice model. Oh, 100%. And one thing to add on to that is, even in, so we just also did some door knocking in the Rockaways uh, to members that, I mean, to, to, you know, on doors where we didn't already have members. And folks would even, you know, there's this perception that black and brown people aren't concerned about climate change. And obviously the polls and the stats show otherwise, show that they're in fact much more inclined to be concerned about the climate crisis. And it really, if, if I've learned anything in the past few years, one of the most critical thing things is that um, it's just making sure people have the platforms and the vehicles to express their concerns. Yo, knocking on these doors in like NYCHA properties, New York City Housing Authority properties, um, developments, people answer the door, start talking, start engaging in a conversation, explaining that this pipeline is going to be built. And even before getting to the points of here's why it's bad, sometimes people will respond, oh, well, isn't that going to disrupt the environment? Or is it, you know, what are going to be the costs of this pipeline um, on, on our community? So, you know, it's not just from those experiences, I just want to make clear, it's um, recognized it's, uh, like you said, one, uh, that fusion of the work that NYCC does um, is very, very valuable towards advancing the climate fight. And two, it also helps reveal that it's not only the polling, but it's also, you know, just in reality that uh, black and brown folks, low income folks, um, are overwhelmingly concerned about the climate crisis and um, ready to engage or at least give input um, when provided the the vehicles and their information about how their communities are going to be affected. You know, I think you're, it speaks to like this neurosis, I think, in a lot of the environmental movement, which is that, you know, most people just don't care or something, or if they're not really like these educated white environmentalists that we all know as, as sort of the familiar faces of this movement. Um, and that that's just doesn't capture reality. Um, and having believed that for many years, it seems like a lot of the big climate groups just lost time and, you know, just failed to, to build power. Um, so I want to kind of come back to this like power building question. Um, you know, you've done this local work, you've done um, state level work, you know, New York renews, federal work, like you mentioned before, supporting, you know, legislation like the Green New Deal for Public Housing Act. And I guess I'd, I'd ask you to kind of say a bit more about the sort of theory of change. Like you talk, there's like a certain amount of lobbying, um, there's disruption. I, there's a lot of 
work on the left now, I think, succeeds through a kind of implicit threat to primary Democrats. I don't know if that's involved in, in your work. There's public opinion. I mean, like, what are your most effective political levers, do you think, once you've connected the dots in terms of the grassroots organizing to actually then bring politicians to the, to the table and then force them to pass stuff that they might not otherwise have, have passed? Well, one is definitely, like you mentioned, one of the most prominent ones is primary candidates. We love to primary. Um, you know, it really, it, it, we've seen that as being very effective. Um, one of the most prominent and recent examples was during the 2018 midterms and lead up to those, we endorsed and campaigned with Cynthia Nixon, who was running against incumbent Governor Andrew Cuomo. Ultimately, Governor Cuomo's, you know, millions and millions from real estate helped him pull out a victory. Um, but we saw how much he responded um, to that that push from the left. Um, one particular example, right back on climate and the Williams fight, um, it was on the day that Cynthia Nixon was revealing and talking about her climate platform in the Rockaways that Governor Cuomo issued and the state, New York State, um, issued the, I think that was the first rejection of the Williams pipeline. Um, so just to put that in context, after months and months at that point of fighting the project, it was on the same day that his primary challenger announced her climate platform that New York State Governor Cuomo and the Department of Environmental Conservation um, for the first time rejected the uh, permits for the Williams pipeline. So anyway, primarian is, um, primarian incumbents is, is one of our tactics um, the other, you know, fundamental thing about our theory of change is you can have the smartest, best policy in the world, but unless you got a ton of people leveraging pressure onto elected officials to implement those policies, you're just not going to see the change uh, that you need. Um, um, so ultimately, we try to always make sure that the voices of people with real life struggles right now as a result of policies that have been put in place and systemic racism and extraction of wealth from communities, we try to make sure that those voices, those folks um, are heard loud and clear, literally loud and clear with all the protests, the yelling and marches um, by elected officials. Um, so they feel more pressure to act. And then again, just to uh, reiterate from before, when you combine um, the folks in black and brown communities that we're organizing in with allies in similar or similar communities and in white organizations, um, it's that much more pressure uh, for elected officials to, to have to respond. Um, so it's that combination of um, actually putting people in the streets, raising the voices of people who in the real world are being affected um, uh, by racism and unjust policies, and also not only threatening the primary, but actually primarying elected officials and, uh, and, and in order to, to shift the politics the way they need to be for our communities. Yeah, I want to follow up on, on the question of primaries. I mean, we had um, Walid Shahid on from Justice Democrats uh, in one of our early episodes uh, talking about primarying for uh, for the House. Um, but, you know, I think for folks uh, who might be outside of New York, um, it might be, be hard to wrap your head around just the, the sort of range of Democrats and, and, and the range of uh of uh, views they can have. I mean, Andrew Cuomo being a sort of particularly special uh, political figure um, in New York, in New York politics in particular. So if you could just, you know, say a little bit about um, what it looks like uh, to, to, to be fighting within the Democratic Party in some sense um, at the at the state level um, and even within the city uh, and, and, you know, how that might be, um, Different, I think, than, than the way that, that climate can be thought about, which is that there are um, Republicans who deny climate change, and that's where the fight is. We just have to, you know, overcome overcome that. But that, you know, would seem to look a little bit um, 
different in, in New York. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a, that's a really good distinction to make. Um, one, there's one example that really draws out the spectrum, helps draw out the spectrum of uh, political ideas that are expressed within the Democratic Party alone in New York State. And that is the IDC, the Independent Democratic Caucus, which was a um, a, a band of, uh, I think it was, it was eight, eight Democrats, technically Democrats in the New York State Senate before the 2018 midterms, who would caucus with the Republicans, um, who uh, would often back, you know, most clearly, or at least one of the most clear areas, um, would often back housing policies that were favored by the real estate, but were contributing to displacement um, in in of so many folks living in uh, in rent regulated housing in New York State, um, among many other things. Um, so you know that's one area where in the you know leading up to the twenty eighteen elections. New York Communities for Change and a bunch of other organizations pushed for um, far more progressive candidates to run against those eight incumbents, Democratic incumbents who caucus with the Republicans, and won six of those eight races. Now, let me explain some of the things that passed after the Senate flipped in that major way, um, which will help reveal what some Democrats were holding back. So after that 2018 midterm flip, um, we saw in 2019 on the state level, the passage of the historic housing, um, uh, uh, housing affordability act, which is massively going to help 2.4 million New Yorkers, um, uh, increase the likelihood that they can stay in their homes, um, help make, homes more affordable and keep rents from rising as rapidly. It doesn't do everything, but it was a historic fight that had been going on for years, but was being blocked by these Democrats in the Senate. Um, so that was one historic piece of legislation. We saw the passage of a massive um, piece of uh, climate legislation, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. Um, you know, unfortunately, it got watered down. Speaking of speaking of Democrats, the range of Democrats, um, the bill in its initial iteration, the Climate Community Protection Act, was a bit stronger on funding for Black and Brown communities, um, among other things, and also on pollution cuts. So it did get watered down a little bit by um, Mr. Progressive Governor Cuomo, uh, but regardless. Um, one can bet, and in fact, it, one can see that that legislation also did not pass um, when the IDC was blocking things up in the Senate. Um, we also saw advancements on criminal justice reform and bail reform in 2019, um, among other, you know, just landmark passages of legislation on the state level after um, conservative Democrats got were, were moved out of the way. And replaced with progressive Democrats. Yeah, so um, it it has been a huge shift, um, and as you said, tons and tons of really, you know, progressive changes that have come through it. So I think a real testament to that primarying strategy. I, you know, you know, maybe building on this, and especially on the whole conversation we've had, I, I want to ask one last question as we kind of close out. Um, I think right now with this huge uprising against police violence and brutality and against the murder of um, black people, as you talked about um, in this context, a lot of people in the climate movement are asking themselves, you know, have we really foregrounded racial justice enough? Have we done enough to actually connect with the needs of communities of color um, and especially black people and, and indigenous people? And, you know, given all that NYCC has achieved and this kind of very powerful model of organizing as you laid out, you know, what would you say to folks in the climate movement who are trying to figure out how they can better bring racial justice into the center of their organizing? Um, like what, how do you think about the kind of weeks and, and months ahead for the climate justice movement and, you know, what they need to do to really meet the needs of this moment? Yeah, great question. 
I mean, first off, we recognize that the issues of police brutality and the issues of uh, climate inequity are both products of systemic racism. You know, with policing, we're seeing black communities are over-policed or disproportionately brutalized by police. We're seeing that even, you know, some reforms in areas like Minneapolis are still resulting in police brutality at a rate, I think in Minneapolis, it's seven times that. Um, it's been police brutality against black people has been seven times that of um, police brutality against white people in the last five years, even after reforms that we looked at. Um, and, you know, we're, we don't just see this with police brutality um, um, and, and murders, but just with incarceration. I mean, now it's old news that black and white people consume the same rates of marijuana, but black folks are four times more, nearly four times more likely to be arrested. For marijuana use. And then on the climate side, you know, same deal. It's we're recognizing it's not old news that black and brown folks are way more likely to live in sacrifice loans zones and way more likely to bear the brunt of pollution from landfills and incinerators and fossil fuel infrastructure. What I think we're seeing now is a powerful response to the explicit outcomes of that systemic racism um, in our policing. Um, And, you know, that's been important to see. And I think that that is where it should suggest to us that the work of making clear and apparent the slow violence that's, you know, manifested by climate change on black and brown communities is incredibly outrageous too and needs a subsequent response um, um, in order to to disrupt it. Um, So I think that's one of the things that that we can learn from this moment of how we... uh, uh, make sure that the those most vulnerable to the climate crisis um that both their suffering and then their solutions uh the solutions for uh these folks are amplified as much as possible to uh get the level of engagement that's needed um if i can mention another thing on that there's this there's just this reality of you know we got we got the explicit racism that we can see with our eyes when a police officer is kneeling on the neck of a black man for over eight minutes. Um, and then we have the, the often hidden systemic racism of uh, until we have things like COVID, for instance, where we see health disparities in communities where black and brown communities are, are suffering the most. Um, and, there's a the need to address the systemic racism and the that explicit racism can't be separated because there's this very real you know there's this very this basic reality that if you're struggling to struggling and worried about paying next month's rent then you may have a little bit less emotional capacity you know time um, and, and resources to push for a piece of legislation that's going to create jobs in your community in the next five years. So that's the other thing that I think it's important for the climate movement to recognize. And it's difficult. And I'm saying that as a, you know, climate justice, black climate justice organizer um, who wants to heavy the hell up on the climate crisis. But sometimes we got to slow down to speed up. You know, we got to figure out what are the holistic and society-wide solutions to make our society fairer um, and and help uplift people that are going to lead to the long-term solutions that we need, whether it's with policing or with cutting carbon emissions um, or any other forms that we see systemic racism uh, manifest. So I think those are some of the things that we can take from this moment um, when we're seeing, when we look at how 
and why people are reacting to recent events in unprecedented fashion. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us on Hot and Bothered. Sure. I think people are really going to get a lot out of this conversation. I hope so. Thanks for the opportunity. That was Patrick Houston, Climate and Inequality Campaigns Associate at New York Communities for Change. And that's it for this episode. You've been listening to Hot and Bothered, a climate podcast in the time of coronavirus. We are hosted by Descent Magazine, produced by Colin Kinnebra. If you like what you've been hearing, help us spread the word, talk to your friends, tell them about this podcast, and tweet to us or about us with the hashtag HotBotheredClimate. And if you are able and if you have already donated to bail funds and Blacklit organizing, pitch in to cover our cost of production. We are on patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate. So until next time, stay hot. Stay bothered. And let's take care of each other. <laughs>